Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to South Fellowship. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you with us today. If this is your first time or your first time in a while, we are on the last Sunday of an eight-week series where we've been studying the letters that Jesus writes through the Apostle John to the churches in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we're in our final message today, and it's a letter that Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea. So if you have your Bible, open with me, Revelation chapter 3. If you got a service guide when you walked in, there's some notes, a note sheet in there where you can follow along with where you're going today. And as we've done in each letter, we've sort of given the church that Jesus is writing to a title. I've tried to, to sort of summarize who they are, sort of their, their ethos, their, their DNA as a church. And this letter I'm entitling the church or the letter to the independent people. Now, some form of independence is really good. Like when, when, my, when my kids move out of my house, my hope is that they're independent, which means that they don't come and live back with me again, praise Jesus. You know, but if they do, they'll be welcomed with open arms and rent to pay. So, uh, but some forms of independence aren't that healthy. Some forms of independence actually prevent us from getting where we, we want to go. I saw a commercial that I, uh, a while back, it's a Pepsi commercial that I think summarized it well with this little phrase that you'll hear repeated throughout the commercial. Can we roll that, guys? I'm good. Be honest here, man. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Ready? Go. Men can take anything. I'm good. Except the taste of Diet Cola. Until now. Pepsi Max, the first Diet Cola for men. This is good. <laughs> Say it with me. I'm good. Have you ever been there where you're arms are full of like grocery bags and someone says, hey, um, can I help you take those to the car? And you respond with, I'm good. I'm good. Or maybe, maybe if you're married and, and men, you may be able to relate to this and you're sharing with your spouse who loves you dearly, the, the ailment that you're um, trying to walk through. And she says, you know what? You should probably go check that out. Get that checked out. There's a whole branch of professionals who deal with sickness, and most guys respond with, I'm good, I'm good. My wife says, well, don't complain about it anymore then, if you're not willing to go and get it checked out, right? I'm good. Or, hey, do you need help with that problem in school that you're wrestling with? I'm good, I'm good. The marriage is sort of getting on the rocks, but we're good. See, I think all of us have something in us that we rely on, and in moments of trepidation, in moments of fear, we just resort to that and we go, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a hard worker. I'm good. I, I know how to make money. I'm good. I've got this web of relationships. We've got a, we've got a strong family. I have people that care about me. I'm good. I'm good. In 1875, the British poet William Ernest Henley wrote a famous poem. At the end of it, he had this caption, this saying, this stanza. He said, I am the master of my own fate, 
I am the captain of my own soul. Essentially, he goes, I'm good. I'm good. If you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative, the story that as followers of Jesus, we would say we find ourselves in. In the very beginning of the scriptures, you have this incident between um, Adam and Eve, who God creates perfectly and places in a garden naked in order to uh, be in relationship with him. And there's a serpent that comes in and says, listen, I know God said you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you should eat for that, from that so that you can become like God, knowing good and evil. And the relationship that Adam and Eve are designed to have with God is one of dependence, one where they run to him, one where they go to him. And this movement towards this tree is a movement of independence. God, we don't need you. God, we can figure this out on our own. God, we're good. Thank you very much. And this attitude is nothing new. It's the very attitude that the church at Laodicea had. It's the attitude Adam and Eve had. It's the attitude that many of us have. And it infiltrates even the best of intentions. Let me show it to you. If you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 3. It's the letter to the church at Laodicea. And here's what Jesus says to them. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. These are the words of the amen, the so be it, the, the God of gods. It's Jesus claiming that he's on the same footing as God. The true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, he says, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, look up at me for a moment. How many of you have heard this verse before? Hey, it's one that sort of sticks with us. Even if we haven't been around the scriptures a whole lot, we go, that picture is one that sort of burrows its way into our soul. That picture of Jesus like vomiting us out of his mouth, right? A little hard to forget that one. Thanks, Jesus, right? And maybe you've heard it said or heard it preached like, well, Jesus doesn't want you to be lukewarm, right? And Jesus would rather you're cold than lukewarm. And we've gone, what in the world does that mean? And you've heard somebody try to explain it and you go, I'm not exactly sure that that works. Well, here's the situation that the church in Laodicea finds itself in. Laodicea was built sort of on a plateau, um, and it was distance from the shore, and Laodicea had absolutely no water source of its own. But it was strategically located pretty close, six miles from Heropolis. Will you say that with me? Heropolis, which was the home to one of the sort of primitive hot springs in this region of Turkey. Even if you go there today, you can see the remains of it. Then water came out of the ground at 95 degrees. And so you would have kings and rulers and wealthy people that would go, and they would take themselves a soak. And Laodicea had a primitive piping system, and they would pipe that water into town since they had no water of their own. Well, about 10 miles away, you also had the city of Colossae. And Colossae was known because it had this sort of ice-cold spring and snowmelt that combined to create great drinking water in Colossae. It was like the Evian of our day, okay? 
And so Laodicea built a piping system and they piped that water into the city as well. But something happened to that water as it came into the city. See, the, the hot water that was good for soaking in and potentially even drinking at times got what? Lukewarm. It got warm. It got tepid. And the ice cold water that was great for drinking in Colossae got what? Lukewarm. Right. And so both of these water sources came into the town. They started off one way, but then they were just evened out to the air temperature and the world around them. And Jesus says to his church, that's what's happened to you too. You may have started out hot, you may have started out cold, but you've been, you've been evened out, you've been adjusted to the world around us. Jesus' message to the church is that its, its works or its deeds reflect the accommodation to its environment. He's not saying, I wish you were cold and that you don't want anything to do with me. What he's saying is, I wish you were useful. Like if you were cold, we could drink you. If you were hot, we could sit in you, but you're lukewarm. And so the picture Jesus gives, and people would get literally physically sick from drinking water in Laodicea. And he goes, he looks at his church and he goes, you're passionless and you're purposeless and you look just like the world around you. I want to use you for good, but you're not distinct. And you make me a little bit sick to my stomach. I mean, let that sit on you for a second. That's what, that's what he's saying. And so, you know, okay, so we come in here and we're like, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. Like, there's no songs about, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what I'll do, right? <laughs> like, we, we didn't sing that one today. There isn't that song. You want to make some money? Write that song, right? <laughs> what do we do with this? Which is it? Is he a good father? Or does he look at us and go, oh, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And, and here's the answer. Yes. Yes. Because he's good, he's going to speak truth to us. The letter that he writes to the Laodiceans is the only letter of the seven where there's not some sort of commendation, nothing saying, you guys nailed it. You're doing this so well. You really stuck the dismount. I'm, I'm so proud of you. There's, there's nothing there that says that. And so the, the amen, the true ruler, is going to speak truth into them, and it's truth that is a little bit hard to hear. So what does Jesus mean by lukewarm, and how did that happen to, to this church? Here's what he says, verse 17. Here's what he says. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. I'm good. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I did college ministry for a long time. I saw a number of college students get verses tattooed on their body somewhere. I never saw anybody get this tattoo. You don't realize that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Never saw it. Here's what's going on. If you were here last week, you heard us talk about the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia in 17 AD was ravaged by an earthquake. 
And Rome came in and with the resources of the empire rebuilt this city in Philadelphia. They were so grateful that they renamed the city Tiberius in order to say, hey, thanks, Rome. Really appreciate that one. Well, in 60 AD, so a number of years later, an earthquake just absolutely decimated Laodicea, wiped it out. And Rome came to Laodicea and said, would you like subsidies in order to rebuild your city? Oh, can we come alongside of you and give you money from the empire in order to rebuild the things that you've lost? And how did they respond? We're good. And they were. And they were. They, with wealthy citizens from Laodicea, they rebuilt this city with their own bare hands and with their own resources. One Roman historian named Tacitus said this, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. If you were to look at a coin in Laodicea, the inscription on the coin that the Laodiceans minted themselves said this, Laodicea, the sacred autonomous. And after a while, they decided we should just drop the sacred portion of this. Laodicea, the autonomous. Somewhere along the way, Rome, we don't need you, turned for the church into Jesus, we don't need you. We're good. We've, we've got this covered on our own. See, this lukewarmness that the church in Laodicea is wrestling with is a deceptive, it's a deceptive sense of self-security. It's, it's pride. And what Jesus would say to them is this, is that a, a posture of self-sufficiency is eventually, eventually, once it gets into our bloodstream, once it becomes the air that we breathe, eventually it gets into our bones and leads to a God deficiency. We eventually say, I'm good, and God says, wonderful, good luck. And if you've been with us over the study in this uh, seven messages in looking at these letters, you may start to realize that there's two threats to not only the church, but also to the life of the follower of Christ. One of them is external. They are wrestling with persecution. They are walking through the fire. Many of them are being mur martyred for their faith, and that's a threat. But maybe the greater threat that they're wrestling with that they don't even realize is a mindset. Persecution is the external threat, but the value system, that's the mindset. The I'm good, that's the mindset. And the I'm good mindset can just as easily take down the church as Domitian can ruling on the throne of Rome. And so, here's the, here's the principle. What happened in their, in their physical, material world impacted their spiritual life. What happened in their physical, material world impacted what happened in their spiritual life. So, which begs the question, we've got to step back and go, okay, Maybe there's some things that were self-sufficient in. Maybe there's some narratives, some cultural narratives that we've been around for so long, just like the church at Laodicea had, that they're just the air that we breathe and we don't even know that we're breathing it. Let me give you an example. Our great nation was formed July 4th, 1776, when 13 colonies signed the what? 
Declaration of Independence. Praise the Lord. We said to Mother Britain, we're good. We don't need you. And, and I, hey, listen, I blow up stuff every 4th of July just like you do to remember that that is a great day. And it was. And it is. But inception drives formation. You know what I mean by that? The way that something begins is often the DNA that gets inside of it, and it's part of what they become. So we are a nation, whether we realize it or not, that's built on this ferocious love for independence. And so now, Robert Bella in his great book, Habits of the Heart, will say that we are now in a season, post-World War II, of what we call expressive individualism. We define ourselves not by looking outside of ourselves like every generation previous to us has and the relationships that we have and the roles that we have and the whatever, right? But we define ourselves now by looking where? Inside. Inside. And this is the air that we breathe, so much so that we don't even recognize that we're breathing it. Which got me to think about, what are the, what's the air that we breathe as Coloradans? Like, what are the things that are important to us? So here's what, this is not a rhetorical question. What would you say is the air that we breathe as Coloradans? Recreation. Recreation. Yes and amen. We live in the mountains or near them. We pay a lot to live near the mountains. And so we love going up. We love going skiing. We love going hiking. We love taking in God's beautiful creation, right? That's one of our values. What else? What's that? Fitness. Yeah, those go hand in hand, right? Yeah, like, man, you cannot count the number of yoga studios, CrossFit studios, 24-hour fitnesses, and like, we are the great, I'm good. Just look at us. Look at you guys. Don't look at me, right? You haven't got a, yeah. What else? Okay, bicycling. So we have this like love for not only sort of enjoying the outdoors from a distance, but in being in them and taking them in. I think you combine that with, well, let's just take an example. How many microbreweries there are in Colorado? Well, here, we love good things in Colorado, don't we? we? We don't just want the commodity. Come on, you could get that anywhere. We want to take it to the next level, and we're willing to pay in order to do that. And see, here's what Jesus does. Jesus jumps into the situation that the Laodiceans are in, and he starts to speak from within their culture truth, and he goes, listen, there's some things that are really good about your culture, there's some things that you value, but let me take them to the next level. Let me, let me take that hiking path that you're on to the next level. Let me tell you about the path of true life. Let me tell you about what genuine, true health for your soul really looks like. Let me give you a taste of what actual pleasure, not just commodity um, or not just craft coffee and craft beer, but let me tell you about a craft life. Let me tell you what that looks like. And he takes all of these things in Laodicea and he takes them to the next level and he starts to redefine for them what it looks like to be fulfilled. Their current state, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, take a deep breath. Okay, in many ways, that's us too. 
And he says, let me speak truth into that situation that can lead you out to something better, something deeper, and something more. So what Jesus is going to do is say, here's how you're saying, I'm good. And let me tell you how I can deepen that. Because self-sufficiency is never enough for the human soul. You were designed for more. You were designed for God-dependency. And there's so many ways subtly that we reject that and say, I'm good. And here's what Jesus is going to do for this church. He's going to speak into that lie and lead them to his truth. Here's what it looks like. He says this, I counsel you, say it with me, church, buy from me. Buy from me. Jesus is like this, um, I get the picture of this like traveling salesman. You're all buying life somewhere. You're all investing your heart, investing your values, investing your motives in something. And he's coming door to door and going, how's that working out for you? How's that that going for you? And here's what he says. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become what? Rich. And the Laodiceans would have taken a step back and gone, listen, Jesus, the great amen. Maybe you're not aware of this, but we are rich. In fact, they were extremely rich. The excavations that are ongoing there even now have identified that Laodicea was an extremely wealthy place in what's now modern-day Turkey. It was very wealthy. In fact, they had one of the very first banks ever created in Laodicea. So people would have physical gold, and Laodicea created a way for them to house and keep gold for people who were wealthy. So instead of traveling, if you were a traveling businessman or salesperson, you could take a little certificate from the bank in Laodicea that says, I have this much gold on file in Laodicea. I'm good for it. And Laodicea that's, said, that's great. We'll keep it all safe for you. We'll just take a little bit of a percentage off the top and we'll call it even. We'll call it good. And so when people would sign that certificate over, they knew it was redeemable in Laodicea. It was like the first checking account. Or for those of you who have no idea what a checking account is, it's sort of like Venmo, okay? So it's original Venmo. And so Jesus looks at them and goes, I know that you have a lot of money, but you're not rich. He goes, there's something else that makes for a wealthy life than just what you have in your bank account. There's more that is designed to fuel fuel and fill the human soul than what you can actually touch and actually handle and put in an account and say, I've got this much. There's, that, that does not create a wealthy or rich life. Jesus says, only that comes from me. In a story that Jesus tells about two brothers coming to him to try to decide who gets the inheritance, Jesus responds by saying this, life does not consist in the, in the abundance of possessions. To quote Albert Einstein, we'll say it like this this morning, that what truly counts can't always be counted. And what Jesus is saying in this little parable he tells in Luke chapter 12 is that greed can actually block us from embracing that which would make us truly rich. That settling for the shadow instead of going towards the real, towards the ultimate, can actually block us from being truly rich. 
I think Mother Teresa said it poignantly and well when she said this about the West. Here's what she said. The spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of our people of of India. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. They feel unloved and unwanted. These people are not hungry in the physical sense, but they are in another way. They know they need something more than money, yet they do not know what that is. What they are missing, really, is a living relationship with God. That's poignant, is it not? I mean, that cuts to the soul of of the air that we breathe and we go, well, if I just had this, if I had shinier, if I had better, if I had just a little bit more, well, then I'd be satisfied. And what Jesus says and what Mother Teresa says is goes, we all know, even though we believe that, we know it's not true. We know we've, we've opened up the iPhone, right? The brand new iPhone, the X or the 8 or the whatever, right? And that first time we opened it up, the Shekinah glory of the Lord shone off of it, right? And then in a few days, it was just a phone. A little bit quicker, but just a phone. And then we dropped it and it was exactly like the other phone that we had. Right? I mean, we've done this with cars, right? Like we've driven off the lot in the car lot, and then a week later, there's goldfish smashed in the backseat of that car, just like there were in the one that we turned in, right? I'm alone in that? I don't think so. If I am, I've got some goldfish and some kids. I'd love you to take them anywhere. Doesn't matter how long it is, they will kill your car. And what Jesus is saying is what really counts, the life you really long for, it's not a material thing. It's not adding one more thing. It's not adding one more zero. It's nothing that you can beat your chest at and go, I'm good. In fact, what Jesus does is he echoes the prophet Isaiah. When prophet Isaiah writes this, he says, come, come on, guys, come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. See, in fact, what Jesus would say, what Isaiah would say, is it's almost a prerequisite that we throw our hands up in in the air and go, we can't buy this on our own for us to come and receive what he's giving. It's nothing in us that we go, I'm good. It's, I need, I need. He goes, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine, this transformative joy. And milk, this sustenance, nutrient-rich sustenance, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on, say this with me, church, what does not satisfy? Come, listen to me, eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear, come to me and listen, that you may live. This is invitation to you and me. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Jesus is saying, Isaiah is saying, you want a, you want a rich life? You want to be satisfied? Here's what you know, here's what I know. That what makes for a rich life can't be counted. It can't be stored in a bank. Jesus is saying the only way you get that is you come to the one who is the author of life, who you were designed to be connected to in order to be filled, sustained, and satisfied. Here's the way that Peter says it. 
He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith or your relationship with God or your connection to Yahweh, the one true God, of greater worth than what? Gold. He's going, that, that's the thing that really matters. And when you live in faith, you turn into generous people. So instead of hoarding your stuff, you invest your stuff in what really matters. When you, when you live by faith, you, you start to see the things that, that matter to God, and what matters to God is people. When you live by faith, you start to take his value system his DNA, and what he says is then, 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 look up at me for a second. Then you become rich. See, God wants you to be rich. Richer than you can ever possibly imagine in a way that you probably don't imagine. And so the Laodiceans are beating their chest, we're wealthy, and he goes, let let me reframe wealth for you come to me. Here's the second thing he says. He says, I counsel you, buy from me gold, which is refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. I mean, Jesus is just throwing down. Is he not? I mean, don't you just read this and like bite your hand a little bit and go, oh man, that, that stings a little bit. He goes, you're sort of like Laodiceans, you're sort of like the emperor who's wearing no clothes. You're prancing around naked and nobody's telling you. He goes, I'll tell you, you're naked. Bet you didn't hear, think you'd hear that today. <laughs> well, here's the deal. What was going on in Laodicea? Laodicea was one of the, the textile capitals of the world at that time. They had a number of black sheep that had shiny black wool that they would use in order to turn into like a primitive raincoat. And the Romans absolutely loved this clothing. They would come from miles around in order to buy in Laodicea. And Jesus says, let me step into your culture. You're clothing everyone else, but you're naked. Your soul is exposed. The things that are deepest within you, the things that you need met in your life in order to keep moving forward, you're running from those things, you're covering those things, but I would love to be a covering for you. I would love to cover your nakedness. All throughout the scriptures, nakedness is like a humiliation, a guilt, a shame. In the book of Nahum, God speaking to the city of Nineveh, he says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts up over your face. I will show them, it's just like, wow. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. Wow. And what Jesus is saying to this church is you don't recognize that's how you're walking around. Like, like, I would love to cover you. I would love to be a love that sustains you on your darkest day. Here's what Jesus is pointing out to them. You're beating your chest. Here's what we can all do. Here's what we've got. I'm good, God. And what Jesus points out is that no amount of external success can cover internal shame. No amount of external success can cover inward shame. That's why you read pieces 
in the newspaper and online about people like Bruce Springsteen, about people like Ben Affleck, about people like Tom Brady, about people like Michael Jordan, who are at the top of their game. And when they lie in bed at night, the narrative that they think about is, just I'll need just a little bit more to be okay, or I wish so-and-so, dad or mom, loved me. Because we're all trying to do something with that peace in our soul that says we're just not quite good enough. According to social worker and and social researcher Brene Brown, here's what she says. Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. And we can do, every single one of us in this room, we can pretend like we don't, but every one of us struggles with shame to some degree. Because of this disconnection from God, we struggle with, God, there's more that I was created for. Some of us in a weightier way than others, but we can do one of two things with that narrative that goes on in our heart. We can do what the Laodiceans did, and they tried to work their way out of it. They tried to achieve all sort of external successes and bank accounts and textile industry and fashion, and we're good. And ours might look like I've been successful, Or ours might look like, at least I didn't turn into fill in the blank. Or ours might look like, what more could I want? But on some level, we're trying to outrun this giant that lurks in the shadows where we recognize that in and of ourselves, we're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. The other option is that we can come to the king. And we can bring ourselves before him with all of our failings and all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our I wish I would have, I'm sorry, I didn't, I can't believe I did, all of those things that we carry around. And we can bring them to him and he says, "Um, I'll be your covering." I can love even that. I can, with my perfection, I can, I can cover all of those deficiencies. I love the way that Jesus paints this picture of a love that covers, of a love that clothes, and of a love that claims. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, can I just tell you that's true of you? And sometimes I'm good prevents us from saying I need. And when we refuse to say I need, we're unable to take the gift that God wants to give us. And so we just keep running on that treadmill of life thinking if it could just get a little bit better, brighter, newer, shinier, if I could just get him or her, then I'd be okay. And what Jesus says is stop, stop, and just admit that you're a person in need. I love the way that Fleming Rutledge, the great theologian, says it when she writes, participation in Christ means abandoning our pretenses, openly acknowledging our identity as sinners in bondage, and at the same moment realizing with a stab of piercing joy that the victory is already ours in Christ, won by him who died to save us. Somebody say amen. 
that, that's wonderful because we have to wrestle with I'm wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked on one hand. And on the other hand, this invitation from God where he says, come to me, be showered in my grace, be drenched in my goodness, allow me to be your sufficiency, I'm enough. That's the Christian life, friends. It's not I'm good. It's I'm loved. And I don't get it because I know me. But I'm loved. He's a good father. That's who he is. And you're loved by him. That's who you are. And friends, there will be a day when you and I will sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb, according to Revelation 19, verse 8, clothed in his righteousness alone. Not running from our shame anymore, but clothed in it. But hey, you don't have to wait for that day. You can know that's true today. It just takes you to stop beating your chest and open your hands to the one who wants to fill you. Here's the way that Jesus ends. He says this, I counsel you, come buy from me, come receive clothing from me, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You know what's really interesting? Is that Laodicea was known in this region for having what they called Phrygian powder. Will you say that with me? Phrygian powder, yeah. And what this was, was it was a, a little mixture, a medicinal mixture that they would put on people's eyes and supposedly it actually really helped restore sight. So people would come from everywhere to meet in the um, doctors at Laodicea to be treated for poor eyesight. And Jesus says, ironically, ironically, you're helping everybody see physically, but you're blind spiritually. And here's his point. To this church in Laodicea, maybe to us too, that physical sight can never overcome spiritual blindness. You're beating your chest about this, but you're missing the thing that could actually help you to see what God would have you see in his world. And what does it look like to see spiritually? Let me just give you two things as we get ready to close our time together today. What does it mean to see spiritually? Here, here's the first thing it means. It means that we see Jesus in the world. To see spiritually means we see Jesus in the world, that we refuse to get beaten down by the narrative of pessimism that is all around us, driven by fear and intended to try to sell you something. When we see Jesus in the world, we refuse to be pessimistic about what's going on. We see, man, in China, there are over 160 million followers of Jesus that most researchers say that there will be more Christians in China in 2030 than in any other country on the face of the planet. That's awesome. That amongst Muslims in the last 12 years, there have been more movements of Muslims to Christ than there have in the previous 1,000 or whenever Muhammad started... I guess it would be 1,400 years previous to that. That's amazing. That's amazing. God is on the move, and God is up to something. And when we have spiritual sight, we see Jesus in the world. Here's the other thing we do. We see Jesus in the world, and we see the world that Jesus sees. 
Spiritual sight gives us the ability to engage the world in the same way that Jesus did. We said this prayer this morning, but I don't think there's any better way to develop a lens for Jesus. What world do you see than this prayer he taught his disciples to pray? You get this sort of like inner picture of here's the world Jesus sees. He sees a world where his father sovereignly and in a holy nature rules and reigns over it and where that nature and that kingdom is coming. Do you see it? Do you see it? He sees a world where every single need that we need met, the very bread that we eat and the breath that we take is given by God. That's the world Jesus sees. He sees a world in which we need to be forgiven and a world where we need to forgive. Is that the world you see? That's the world Jesus sees. And he sees a world in which there's a very real enemy and there is a real protector and his prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the one who's evil. Um, it's, a, it's a recognition of the cosmology that Jesus would have that this world is a world at war. Do you see that world? Do you see that world? Okay, look up at me for just a moment. One of the greatest lenses we have of not only spiritual sight, but spiritual vitality is, is prayer. When our prayer lives dry up, it's probably not intentional, but it should be a sign to us that in some way we're beating our chest going, God, I'm good. And we may not say it with our lips, but we're speaking volumes with our heart. So maybe this week you carve out some time to just get quiet and get alone. I know that's harder for some of you than others, both physically because of your obligations and because of your wiring, but get alone and just ask God, what would you say to me? I think that's the deficiency in the Laodicean church. They're, they're good, but Jesus comes to them, and here's how he finishes this letter in, in all of them. He says, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. I'm coming at you as one who's good, as one who loves you, as one who's for you and knows that this declaration, I'm good and I'm okay, pales in comparison to I'm in need, but I'm dearly loved. So change, he says, change. And he follows that up with this verse you've probably heard before. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. What door is Jesus knocking on? He's knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea. Church! What counts really can't be counted. Church, no amount of external success can cover an inward shame. Church! You got physical sight, but you're spiritually blind. Church, wake up. Are you saying, Ryan, that Jesus is saying that you can go to church, be a follower of Jesus for years and years and years, and miss the fact that Jesus is knocking at your door? Look up at me for a second. Yes. It's exactly what I'm saying. 
So this should be a harrowing letter in some ways for us, and it should be an eye-opening letter in others for us to say that just because we're in church, just because we're around the story, just because we've become a member or we've been a follower of Christ for X amount of decades doesn't mean dilly squat. Jesus might still be knocking at our door saying, will you please let me in? Will you please let me in? Because I want to be intimate with you, and I, I want you to know me, and I want my love to cover you. See, Laodicea was this like place that was a bridge in between the, the um, one world and another. Sicilia was just right on the other side. And so the Roman soldiers, they would encamp at Laodicea. And they had this, this tradition, this requirement, where if a Roman soldier knocked on your door, it was forced hospitality. You had to invite him in. You had to make him dinner. They needed a place to stay. You had to open your house. And Jesus says, I'm not going to force my way in. But I'm here. And I'm knocking. What are you going to do with me? There's this picture a number of years ago. It was painted by a man named William Holman Hunt. And it's a depiction of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. This verse. It's Jesus standing at the door of the church of Laodicea, but look at some of the details in it. One of the details is that there's weeds growing up over the door. Like like they've had this self-sufficiency for so long that they never embraced a God dependency and they missed out. Here's another thing to notice though. That there is no doorknob on the outside. The only doorknob is on the inside. And it's this picture of Jesus saying, I'm not, like the Roman soldiers, I'm not going to force my way in. But I'm here. And I'm knocking. And what are you going to do with me? I wonder in what ways have we just embraced our cultural narrative of I'm good and missed out on the God who says, I'm here. I wonder how many ways have we said I'm good instead of I need and missed out. Can we take a few moments? Because my conviction is that Jesus is here and that Jesus is knocking. And just because you're here doesn't mean you've let him in. So can we take a few moments? We're going to sing one last song together. But as we sing, would you pray and ask, God, what are you you saying to me? What things am I holding on to? What rope am I clinging to that's just one of my own making? I've got my, my intellect. I've got my work ethic. I've got my relationships. I've got my bank account. I'm holding on to those things. In what ways am I saying back to you, Jesus, I don't need you? Will you ask that as we sing this? And then however he invites you to respond, it may be in kneeling in prayer up here. It may be in raising your hands and saying, I need. It may be just silently surrendering some things to him, some situations to him. But let's take this last song and ask that God would minister. Would you stand with me as we sing?